What's up and welcome back to Nostalgia Pod, giving you your weekly look at what's going on pop culture. My name is Pat Sheehan, joined by my trusty co-host, Dave Martin Swagger. Dave, fresh off our Drake rankings. How are you feeling about those? Good. Feeling good. S- still no closer to certified lover boy, so the wait continues there. But yeah. uh, those rankings are out there for those who seek them. YouTube.com slash Nostalgia Pod. I, I was thinking about it, and we didn't mention this last week, but um, like what, like three weeks from now will be the three-year anniversary of Scorpion. Is that right? Maybe two years. Three years, twenty eighteen. So, uh, maybe there will be a uh, anniversary drop for Certified Lover Boy this uh-huh. weekend. Who knows? Well, we'll see. Huh. But anyways, uh, if you if you check out, as I think they just mentioned. Uh, YouTube.com/slash/nostalgiapod and SoundCloud.com/slash/nostalgiapod is the best way to listen to that podcast. And we have a jam-packed one this week because uh, nature and pop culture seems to be healing a little bit as we've gotten some TV shows, quite a bit of music, some movies. We're not going to get to everything that's dropped in the last two weeks today. We'll be catching up a little bit more next week, but have a pretty jam-packed show. We're going to start right at the top with some uh, some culture news. Big purchase announced this past week where Jeff Bezos dropping the bag, acquiring MGM, which has had been shopped for a while, for eight point four five billion dollars. Dave, I mean, holy shit! MGM getting that at this point seems kind of crazy, especially knowing that they had been shopped a bit. What was your reaction to this news? Yeah, well, because we had within a week prior, we had gotten word that Amazon was in talks. Then it seemed to close pretty soon after that. yeah, you know, on one hand, I think it makes sense on Amazon's angle, but I was, I think a lot of people, you know, relatively speaking, a little struck by like the dollar amount, as it were, because you just think about like other acquisitions, like this comes down as Amazon's second uh, priciest acquisition after Whole Foods, meaning it's substantially more expensive than what they paid for Twitch, for example. This is more than double what Disney paid for Lucasfilm almost 10 years ago now like crazy the, num- the numbers are going up okay we were yep. pumping those numbers up as mcconaughey would say and in the case of um an apple or an amazon uh the numbers really do not matter because these companies have tens of billions of dollars of straight cash just on hand mm-hmm. ready to be spent so uh yeah you know mgm getting out of the game you know, usually we talk about consolidation in terms of how it affects the streaming wars. We're never like super jazzed about that sort of thing because it's going to mean layoffs. It's going to mean uh, just less jobs out there and stuff. But in the case of MGM, MGM has not exactly been a uh, uh, big driver of box office year to year, apart from a few of their franchises and a few other small films they'll make every year. They're not the biggest player. So them getting sold at the end of the day, it's probably not that big a deal because it was going to happen eventually you know we talked mm-hmm. when um warner and discovery just did their merger or planned merger that the smaller fish uniting would probably be more desirable than apple and amazon just dropping all these bags but in the case of mgm i feel like them going to unite with like amc or via CBS, like i don't think it moves the needle for those smaller companies anyway if that was to happen and in the case of amazon yeah it probably doesn't move the needle super strongly for them either but they can afford to do it with really no risk at all so it's uh it it, it has had to happen i guess you know 
Like, yeah. like you said, it's been not for sale for a while. You've had every, basically everyone has sniffed around MGM at one point or another in the last 10 years. Yeah, it's just kind of crazy to think about, like you said, Lucasfilm was right, right around $4 billion. I think Marvel was also right around that number. So Disney, which acquired Star Wars and Marvel, two of the most lucrative you know, uh, IP streams out there for the same price as this. And what is Amazon really getting? You know, Bond, obviously, but even with Bond, there's there's stipulations that where I believe the what the creators of it get to still decide when the movies come out. Yeah, the Broccoli family has a controlling interest in the, right. I think, all like all rights regarding producing stuff based off James right. Bond. They've previously nixed television show attempts in the past. Um, uh, the you know, family of producers, I think, that were associated with Bond's original incarnations. But and that's actually why I was kind of happy to see this, because like, oh, well, the Broccoli family will ensure that No Time to mm-hmm. Die, of course, but also future James Bond films will continue to release in theaters and not just get dropped on Amazon Prime. So like my right. biggest concerns are probably not any, you know, any anywhere remotely possible, right? And yeah. in the case of the Broccoli family, why on earth would they ever sell any these rights to Amazon? Mm-hmm. It's the same way like Sony will never sell Spider-Man film rights to Marvel because there is no reason to cut off the never-ending supply of future money, right? So Bond yep. Bond in the theaters is safe, so I'm all cool with that. But you're right, like that, that that's the big jewel here, and there are uh, asterisks associated with what Amazon gets to do do with it. Yeah, and you know they also get the Rocky franchise and Pink Panther. I guess like the question that becomes, what of the of MGM's like deep vault are they gonna like start plucking and saying, okay, we're gonna start building on what we got here? You know, and and I think that's really the the question moving forward with Amazon. You know, we've been talking about Amazon having the Lord of the Rings spinoff, which has been hyped up, huge budget supposed to rival game of thrones looking forward to that can't wait to see it i'm really interested to see what they're gonna start building off of you know from what mgm has in reserve because i mean since i i don't really even know where to start maybe tomb raider you know like i feel like there's something to build off there especially if you can get vikander to Mm -hmm. you know maybe do like a uh mini series or something like that i think that would work a lot better episodically than maybe some of the movies have worked recently um you know obviously they get handmaid's tale in this um yeah they're and and that's another piece to it is mgm has its tv branch and a lot of those tv shows uh, are co-productions and there's like uh, mark burnett's production company was acquired by mgm so it's TV stuff's kind of complicated in terms of like how much of that like gets to really benefit uh, Amazon at the end of the day. And the other piece to this too is uh, MGM's library, which is probably the biggest selling point to this overall, is just you know uh, innings in the mm-hmm. game here, just 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 hours to put on TV. Uh, MGM had sold lots of its library, more especially if it's like more recent variety already. So you're really getting like, I think it's like the pre 1986 is where the cutoff is for this MGM library. And you think about it, think about Amazon, right? Like Amazon, Amazon's library. Like we don't actually talk about Amazon originals all that often. We're going to talk about Underground Railroad later today. But other than that, we talked about Fleabag, obviously, of Mm -hmm. course. 
and we talked about Homecoming. Yep. And that's about it in the past like two years as far as TV is concerned. We just talked about Without Remorse, but of course Without well, Remorse. Uh, the the like, Boys. Oh, and The Boys. The Boys is a great one yeah. too, yeah. But like Without Remorse, Coming to America, all their big movies have been acquisitions. They've largely struggled yep. to make any dents of movies they've actually financed and not just acquired or purchased from Paramount. So mm-hmm. I guess this is just an att- another attempt to, you have more things to develop now for yourself. And in the long term, that'll save you money. So you don't have to give Paramount 80 billion bills for coming to America. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's just one of those places. But again, Amazon can afford to just throw money at the problem, quote unquote, because they're True. Amazon. Yeah. So I, I, I found it here. They, they called out 12 different movie titles and as you know, things that they might build off of or at least acknowledge them as important pieces in this purchase. And they were 12 Angry Men, Basic Instinct, Creed, and Rocky. Legally Blonde, Moonstruck, Poltergeist, Raging Bull, Robocop, Silence of the Lambs, Stargate, Thelma and Louise, Tomb Raider, Magnificent Seven, Pink Panther, Thomas Crown Affair, and of course, James Bond. Out of those, do any of those really excite you as like, oh, I can't wait to see what they do with that? I, I, very few of those seem to be ripe for franchise potential. Obviously, you right? can remake tons of that kind of stuff. You could remake 12 Angry Men, Thelma and Louise, fine. Yeah. But like that's kind of like a limited ceiling, I guess, in terms of for Amazon's purposes. Um, you know, if you did another RoboCop and it was cool, sure. Like I remember the RoboCop from uh, with Joel Kinnaman wasn't very good, but like RoboCop's had many uh, failed uh, reinventions before. But that one at least has potential as a franchise. Maybe in like a Black Mirror way, I could see. Right, no. but yeah, I mean, a lot of the, none of this is like hot IP really, apart from yeah. Rocky, Creed, and Bond. And even Rocky Creed, it's like, how much of that is really a franchise? You know, like we assume Creed 3 is the last Creed. It sounds like Stallone yeah. will be in it at all. Do you want to see more Rocky slash Creed stuff without Michael B. or Sylvester Stallone? I don't know. You know, so. Uh, uh, it's actually interesting as you're talking about this, though. Uh, the two I, I already called out Tomb Raider seems like it, there might be something there. Legally Blonde, maybe uh, you know, especially like if if you there was talking of a right... third one for a long time already. Yeah, I don't know if it can be centered around Reese anymore, but maybe you get Reese as like a mentor to someone, and you're centering around someone younger. I don't know, you know, like it's just nothing here really stands out. Silence of the Lambs, I guess, if you can get the right person to do maybe like a prequel, or I, they they did something like that actually, right? Isn't that uh, on yeah, right now? The, yeah. the TV show, yeah. Um, I mean, Poltergeist, I guess, yeah. You could try and make Blumhouse-esque horror movies for yeah. low cost, but like, I didn't, you still need a lot of creative juice to really make any of these reinventions or <laughs> reboots work, obviously, and Amazon hasn't really shown a good deal about that. Well, like Again, their, their best original stuff has been auteur-driven, whether it's Esmail or, you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge or what have you, so... And like, you know, they, Lord of the Rings, 500 million just to have the privilege of then spending hundreds of millions more to make the show was already another example of this Amazon just using their financial might to take this over. Because, again, they have a different angle to this, like the way Apple does streaming wars. They just want you to be in on Prime so that you can buy more shit from them. You yeah. know? And Prime Video is just another uh, means to an end for, for this. And they kind of spoke about their investor call about like the percentage of Prime subscribers that also watch Prime Video and how they, if they can increase that, keeps people subscribed, you know, you can 
figure out all the connections. But uh, yeah, a lot of remains to be seen, I would say, in terms of the MGM specifics having much of an impact on Prime Video in the short term. Yeah, for sure. Um, we'll, we'll be talking about this as we hear more. Um, but why don't we switch gears and move over to the music world where we got a uh, EP from a group that we haven't really heard from in quite a while. Uh, Mannequin Pussy, um, a band that we really enjoyed their first, I guess, like proper release, Patience, back in 2019, dropping the EP for Perfect. And uh, man, I, I gotta say, I, I really, it just felt good to be back with this band because I, I remember when we when we listened to Patience and obviously did our review, I think what really stood out to us was um, just like the energy that this group brings. It was really exciting. Um, you know, obviously drunk too is I think the highlight off this and was featured uh, in mayor of East town, which we're going to be talking about a little bit later. I think in a, a pretty Actually, spot, spot on yeah, <laughs> needle drop scene, but um, just overall, the whole album, I think brought this like fire to it that really stood out. And I think you get, it's a little up and down on Perfect. I think there's some tracks that fall a little short. It's only five songs and 13 minutes, so it's quick and hoping to hear more. But, uh, you know, it seems like they're trying to go in a couple different directions. How did this uh, quick EP hit for you? Yeah, I think there's a, a few moments that stand out, which is kind of essential for something with such a short runtime. And seeing that the band is now a three-piece unit, not a four-piece. Yep. And then also seeming to hear some like artistic growth or at least desire to go down multiple paths uh, kind of surprised me. Um, you know, I think like that second track, perfect, the title track that yeah. you know, has like really heavy drums and guitar. It's kind of familiar. It's kind of what I expect from them as like one of the few like traditional punk bands that has any kind of like mainstream consciousness as far as I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. And then you contrast that with the last track, Darling, which is much more softer, slower, lower pitch, uh, just really singing. And it's kind of, well, that that's definitely a different speed than what I expect from Anakin Pussy. So, mm -hmm. and then in between then, of course, you have, I think, something that makes a lot of easy headlines, like in Pigs is Pigs. So uh, those mm -hmm. three songs really stood out to me, which is nice, because again, it's only five tracks. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I agree. I think Perfect is... You know, the obviously title track, but I think it's the most standout in terms of what we come to expect from them. That change up around the the chorus when the drums just totally start to like slow down but become more like brooding is really awesome. <clears throat> and obviously, um, I think that like laugh that the lead singer does around the uh, the chorus is really the the standout moment to me. But then that even flows into to lose you which feels like maybe one of the most traditional songs we've heard from mannequin pussy like it feels just like a straight up like pop-ish sound which is that kind of what i expected which it, it, the song sounded nice but i think in terms of what i was hoping to hear from them it felt a little bit uh less exciting but then yeah like you're right pigs, pigs and darling both kind of stood out to me as well control was an okay track kind of fell flat but i think this just uh wet wet the beak so to speak in terms of what uh 
what I'm hoping to hear on a full full length release of an LP. Um, any last thoughts on this? I mean, this is just a quick one, but I really wanted to touch on it because this is an exciting band. Probably one of the yeah. ones I look forward to most from here. You know, Pigs is Pigs. They It's kind of uh, out in the open about what that's about. I've seen name checking George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, stuff like that. Um, you can definitely hear like the rage in the yeah. song. And this is kind of like one of those things that like, people always like, like to ascribe to rock music as like art affecting the world and stuff like that. Not sure if it's as eloquent as, say, like Walking in the Snow from Run the Jewels, for example, but mm-hmm. for like a sub two minute track, I feel like it, it does get its message across. And yeah, I wasn't expecting it going in. So pleasant surprise. Sure. Yeah, that's one of the things, is, um, you know, Missy taking the lead on the vocals almost all the time on Patience. And then uh, I forgot what the guy's name is but he kind of see, sings mostly on pigs as pigs and that really caught my ear you know see a change up for them so um check it out we'll be adding probably one of the tracks to our nostalgia best of 2021 playlist which is uh in the show notes but why don't we move forward to another group that i think we both felt really encouraged by their first uh album which is black midi um dropping Schlagenheim back in 2019 with, uh, you know, BM, 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 I think being the clear standout from that to us. Yeah. But overall, just like this very strange, uh, unique energy and feel. And uh, Black Midi, you know, has really kind of set the stage for this UK rock emergence of. I guess like what's being called now avant rock, you know, this like very, it's undefinable. It feels like a lot Mm -hmm. of this post-punk math, rock, noise, rock, experimental rock. It's a lot of rocks. It's (laughs) it's definitely hard to pin down, especially song to song. And I would say black MIDI is the hardest to quantify of the, of the three groups we're thinking of, of course, squid and black country, new road have already released new records this year. But yeah, this this trio of UK bands continue to uh, surprise me, confound me. It really it depends song to song. And I have to say, Cavalcade, Black Midi's second album, uh, I, I, I had a hard time with this one, gotta be honest. <laughs> what do you feel like made this a harder listen than some of the other albums we've checked out? Yeah, I, I think it's just like they are very much going to the beat of their own drum. And that beat uh, is often not like in tune. It's very much like all who knows where it is, but that beat's going somewhere. They're just following that beat. Um, yeah, I would say like vocally, they uh, the lead singer he almost is so like hands off. Like I like mix like the mix wise. I'm like, are you actually like talking to the mic sometimes? Like, like <laughs> he's like intentionally being hard to like understand and stuff and it's just mm. that's what they're going for and sometimes it's really really loud and sometimes it's not loud at all and like they will cut something like in the middle of the rhythm and it's it's just very strange right so mm. i would say like for an album it, it's only eight tracks a lot of the tracks are long though so you still got 40 minutes here it it kind of rewards i would say multiple listens is because the first time through i'm really just listening for like what's gonna happen next because i really don't know what the fuck's going on and I don't listen to a lot of this kind of rock, like the noise rock stuff, the math rock stuff. So it, it's still more surprising to me. But 
yeah, I think sometimes song to songs, I'm like, wow, this is like just kind of a dud for me. I need this song to end already. And sometimes that song's eight minutes long. So <laughs> it can be a challenge. Yeah. Did you feel that way on the final track ending fourth, which is 10 minutes? I mean, that yeah, that one I mean, starts off so slow and builds, really builds. By the yeah, the, the build is cool, especially because like I feel like a lot of the middle of the album I did not have a lot of time for. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, the first track, John L., reminded me a lot of the first yeah. album. And that's mm-hmm. what I would say is probably the most easy to recommend of songs off Cavalcade, just because it's, I think, again, most easy to like put in a box to be broad. So Yeah, you know, it's... It's interesting because it definitely feels like they are trying to build out their sound a little bit on this. You know, you get tracks like Marlene Dietrich or um, what's the other one that really stood out to me as being a little different. Oh, um, uh, Diamond Stuff, which is Mm -hmm. very like toned down and like meandering and feels a bit listless in, in a way. But it really feels like they're going for like a maybe like a bit more of like a shoegazy feel. Marlene Dietrich is like a pretty like smooth jazz track. It feels like kind of anchored by this, like, like very like soft strumming on the, an acoustic guitar throughout. And it feels like they're trying to just like build out this sound so that they can just hit you with like the most unpredictable album possible. I think that's the thing that makes them exciting is upon that first listen track track, you really have no idea what's coming next. Sometimes that grab bag falls flat. I agree. I, I think this, album felt a little bit more flat than a slog behind me. Um, but I think there's also moments on this that really bring me back to why I think Black Midi is such an exciting band. Something like, um, I don't even know how to say his name, Rondo Malicia Patella. Like, that is such a, like, worrying track. Like, the drums on that just make you feel like you're in, like, a, a blender a lot of the time. And it builds up so strongly by the end where it feels like they're just like losing it and then the next track to that slow is like anything but the title track like it feels like your like heart is like racing out your chest a lot of the time by like the the pace of of the guitar playing and the pluckiness of it is really i think uh, uh, those two stand out you know I, I agree this probably isn't black Midi's best but i think uh I think you can hear a lot of what makes them so exciting right now. So I'd like, I'd like to see how these play out live. I've never seen one of these groups live. And I wonder if the shows are like, just like go hard and people are like moshing or if it's more like people are like, you know, kind of, ah, okay. And then it builds up, ah, you know, <laughs> up and down. I don't know. Interesting to see. Um, but you didn't really like this one. Are, are you feeling like this scene might be like, hitting its apex maybe it's like petering nah, out I wouldn't, or you feel like- I wouldn't say that I just think no. they were just a little indulgent this time around like mm-hmm. I, I respect it do what you want to do I, and I, yeah. I guess in the sense that impresses me that this is the album they wanted to make they went actually further uh, left to center which is you know tr- historically not with a lot of bands do once they get success so that's cool I guess yeah good for them um, also I just want to say Sending Forth it's a 10 minute track um, but that like ending is pretty fucking awesome. So um, I'd recommend checking it out. We'll definitely have a track on our playlist as always, but let's turn to the saviors of rock and roll. At least the people that were pinned to be that back in 2018 when trench dropped and uh, they headlined pretty much every festival that summer, which is 21 pilots, the duo 
uh, drummer and guitarist. <laughs> Dropping their newest album, Scaly and Icy. Okay. Um, yeah, short for scaled back and isolated. Get it? Quarantine. Open your third yeah. eye, dog. It's uh, it, it closed because I found this album to be a little bit uninteresting at points. I'll say. You'd say that again. Uh, why don't we Why don't we set the scene with Trench though? Because I think that actually is important. You know, French came out and sold a lot. Very popular. Twenty Pilots was everywhere. But was it a good album? You know, like I, we we panned it pretty much, from what I remember. Yeah, I mean, there are some moments like My Blood, which I believe is one of the singles, but I think that their like songwriting has been largely exposed and they certainly didn't try and remedy that this time around. And they seem to just be a victim of their own success. It's kind of funny to think, but Scaled and Icy is technically their sixth album. People kind of forget the two albums before Vessel, but yeah. um, they, they do exist. And you, I mean, <laughs> Even before Trench came out, this this duo, this band, quote unquote, is the only was the first act in U.S. history to have every song on two separate albums certified gold. The every track on Vessel and uh, Blurry Face, of course. And you look at just look at their three big hits: Stressed Out, Ride, and then Heathens. Of all of all songs, Heathens, the song off the. Uh, Suicide Squad soundtrack. Those are all well oh, over a billion streams on Spotify. Um, stressed out and is it stressed out and ride. Stressed out and heathens. They're both top one hundred most streamed songs ever on Spotify. Like they're just they're, they're they're like a superstar <laughs> act, and yet I feel like they've been critically uninteresting for a long time now. <laughs> And like scaled and icy, like I was listening to this, and by, I was so done with this album by the end. I was like, my god, like they they're just so pop now, but it's like not cool. Like it's not cool at all. Yeah, like, there's some moments, but even like there, I I actually have to give them credit for how much of chameleons they've become. Because I used to get like even described as like oh like you know it's kind of rap and stuff. If you, if you actually like listen to the songs with hip hop cadences, like you know a lot of the popular songs, you like read these bars and like they are low key struggle bars. Oh. Like, like it is not like good rapping, but now they're barely even doing rapping. And I frankly, I find a lot of the singing even worse. So uh, they're, they're a fascinating group because the success continues to follow them. And yeah. I'm having a hard time seeing what people latch on to because they have differentiated now over the course of six albums. And it's like, what what is what is the most appealing stuff? Because they, they have a very reverent fan base, you know, but mm -hmm. I, I I've had a hard time trying to. To, to grasp what, what what it is that people are still really invested in. And I, there has been some backlash to some of these songs from what I understand within the fan base. So maybe they can see that, you know, they're going a little uh, elevator music at times, but um, yeah, I'd, I'd still like to know exactly what the appeal has been, you know, cause I, I, I can't it's, place it. It's interesting too. Cause uh, when I was listening to this and I, I, I ran back a couple parts of it a couple of times, um, this feels more in line with vessels than it does with Trench or Blurry Face to me. I think, um, you know, looking at those three songs you mentioned, Stressed Out, Ride, and Heathens, they're all kind of this, like, chill-hop vibe to them, you know, where it's kind of like modern-day, like, 
mainstream pop reggae kind of you know it's just like not really interesting music but it's laid back and you can just put it on and it's mindless um and what i think feels more like vessels which is actually an album that i think is quite enjoyable uh with shy away um or sorry not shy away with um gail the nicey is they they do these like switch ups and it's very much just like stealing a lot of like 80s vibe to it like i'm pretty sure one of the songs i think it's the outside reminds me of like a very specific 80s song i can't can't put my finger on i think it's like hold me now hold me Mm. i don't know if you know that song but right right yeah it sounds literally just like it i think they should get royalties for that track but they really are just like stealing honed back 80s chill hop vibe and that's the whole thing and it's it's the lane that seems to be most successful for them. They do switch up and throw in some rapping here and there. They, uh, you know, have some like pretty interesting, if not exciting, I think switches. I think one of the first tracks, uh, um, maybe it was Saturday or something like that, maybe or, mm-hmm. or Choker, maybe. There's like a pretty like distinct like switch at some point, but nothing here is anything that I think is going to like grab new fans. And I don't think it's anything that is really going to be exciting for old fans. It just feels kind of like, let's get this one out, get back on the touring, you know, have something new to play. And uh, I don't know. It's just weird. Cause who, who do you like lump them in with? Like uh, to me, I think about foster the people. I think about imagine dragons. Imagine dragons um, is what I had come to. Yeah. And like, it's not a I, good comparison. You do not want to be compared to them. It's not, but what a what a lane. Because Imagine Dragons for not being a great band either also does crazy numbers. So yeah. Why why switch this up if they're hauling in the dough? Yeah, yeah I guess. Yeah, uh, to clarify, stressed out is number forty and uh Heathen's number seventy-eight in terms of most stream songs in Spotify history as of today. So that's um hard to argue with, I suppose. Uh, yeah, the songs that stood out to me uh, actually came in succession towards the beginning. They'd be uh, uh, The Outside and Saturday. You mm-hmm. know, I think one of those you get like more of the traditional like hip-hop cadence that you expect from Tyler at times. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I-, I totally agree. I don't think this is going to wow anyone who is not uh, up on the act at this point. And I-, I, don't, I don't... Like, this is not the music that like brings you in if anything this is just padding out the set you know like this is music that gets licensed and that's that's all that happens to it no one has a lot of passion for it um which is again kind of a weird result from a quarantine album an album that in general we are nicely removed from the the previous effort trench like the next 21 pilots album was going to be getting attention just kind of weird that this is what they decided to make um you know in in the interim we've had tyler uh last year uh, kind of refuse to uh, align with Black Lives Matter. And when he was asked to uh, use his platform, he decided to post a picture of him wearing platform shoes, which, you know, you, no one, no one's required to make statements or anything like that. But I think to like kind of openly scoff at the notion, especially when it's coming from your fans, just came off as awfully tone deaf to me, especially from a guy who is white and was using lots of hip hop influence to further his career. So I did not think that was a great look. And, uh, no. you know, he even followed up with music that really is worth a damn anyway. So 
but you know they'll when they when, when they when they do a tour again, it'll be in arenas and it'll sell the fuck out because they still have a lot of fans. So it is yep. what it is. Yeah, it's uh, it's just crazy. And you know, you think about I was joking, but also kind of not that they really had been tapped as like the next leaders of rock and roll, and it's just like okay, well, rock yeah. is dead. <laughs> yeah. Give me the 1975 every day of the week. <laughs> if we're talking, you know, Sanders. unfortunately, unfortunately, it's probably true. Um, better band to be leading. You know, that, I think that's what, again, kind of just circling back to Black Mini. That's what makes them so exciting is that at least like they're doing stuff that yeah. is in line with rock and roll and feels like they're experimenting and trying and pushing the boundaries. Whereas this is just so right. cookie cutter. I don't know. Kind of boring. Anyways, uh, to pilots, scaled and icy. Um, I don't know if we'll have a track on their uh, playlist. Don't bother. Let's move on to Olivia Rodrigo, though. The uh, Let's go. I mean, uh, pop pop music is alive and well, and Olivia Rodrigo is the uh, the, the torchbearer man. Because I mean, uh, Taylor Swift might have invented pop music, and Lord might have perfected it, but Olivia Rodrigo has just elevated it to another sphere, man. This is some fucking banger after banger on this album sour the the first album from olivia rodrigo known for being in high school the musical the musical whatever the name high school musical the musical the uh (laughs) disney plus series about high school kids acting in a high school musical play play at their school which was i think actually kind of a smart way to uh reboot that ip in a certain sense so i give him credit for that but uh yeah, go to Olivia Rodrigo's YouTube channel and you'll notice that there was nothing on this until four months ago when Driver's License came out. And that is something I've just been so struck with. It's just that the the speed of which yeah. Olivia has ascended to pop superstardom, complete A-list, like that. I believe she's just turned 18 years old. Like you said, she was only known for acting on a show for teens. So like... When the whole thing happened with driver's license, you know, there's the drama behind the scenes with her boyfriend who was a co-star and this song happens. It's a big thing on TikTok. I'm like, huh, you know what? That's cool. Maybe I'll check out the song eventually because like I'm not invested in the high school musical, the musical drama. Like it was not something, you know, on my radar. And then of course not. All of a sudden. Olivia Rodrigo is not only completely accepted by Gen Z, but now she's going to completely embraced by millennials as well and scooped up by Interscope. And now she's a mainstream pop force and she just set the biggest first week sales for an album of 2021 thus far with Sour, which did uh, over 200,000 first week. And again, I'm just like, fuck, how the hell did this happen? This is crazy. Dave on Spotify, uh, you know, the, Top ten songs on Olivia Rodrigo's page. You know, Sour dropped what two weeks ago now. Um, yes, thirty two, fr- two Fridays ago. million, thirty million each listens is the is the least amount of listens that she has. That's insane. Like you think about like we're just talking about rock bands. Like if the Killers had an album where their least listened to track was thirty million, that would be the biggest success of their career at this point. The Killers are probably the most mainstream down the middle rock band that we have right now so that's saying something this is a fucking phenomena and you know i think the album actually backs it up for the most part i think the second half gets a little bit tiresome a little bit same notey 
But man, that first half, uh, all the way up through good for you is like yeah. undeniable to me, I'd say. I mean, even now, again, we are over a week removed, a week and a weekend removed from the album drop. She's still occupying eight of the top 10 spots on the top 50 US chart on Spotify. Of course, she had been occupying all 10 for a while at this point. Um, the, the scale, again, just really baffles me. Good for you, which was one of the singles and one of the best mm-hmm. songs on the album, uh, set the record for biggest streaming week in Spotify history with over 84.1 million streams, which broke the record she had just set with driver's license, which again is, is mind blowing because no one was like ready for driver's license to drop and excited to stream it a shit ton, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's crazy, dude. But yeah, I think for, a, first, for, 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 a, for a debut album, for someone who was not a full-time artist until the past few months, it's way better than it had any right to be. And I, I don't know how you can really be critical. Like, obviously, I have things to quibble about. Uh, but for a first record for someone who's not been a full-time artist for more than a few months, like it's a complete complete win, and she's being completely rewarded for it. Obviously, yeah, it's it's insane. And you know, it it drivers place. Obviously, you mentioned it was dropped. I think back in uh, January. January and just blew up. TikTok uh, made it made its way all the way to SNL, where they did a, a whole skit based around this. Um, it went when she was a musical guest, just amazing uh, turn, you know, to have that kind of reach the zeitgeist in that way. Um, obviously Gen Z is not really watching SNL. So why they're doing this and the fact that it kind of made it into the, that, that audience is just phenomenal and mind blowing. But then <laughs> you go right from driver's license to deja vu on TikTok. So freaking good for you is all over TikTok right now. You can't swipe one, two videos without hearing that song again. It's insane how poppy this album is to the point where it literally is just setting trends every other week on the most popular social media platform that we have right now. And yeah, you know, you start off with a song like Brutal, which is not at all what I expected, especially because, you know, hearing Driver's License and Deja Vu, those were those felt like very like down the middle pop songs in terms of like convention Good for you is a little bit more like Paramore and even to the, yeah. I mean, it, it sounds just like, uh, what's that track? Misery, that? Misery Business. Business? Yeah, mm-hmm. it sounds, it literally is Misery Business, but it still fucking goes hard. But Brutal is, is right in line with Good For You. And she wants to be exploring this like pop rock sound, which I didn't expect. But I mean, if she's going to be going from there to things like One Step Forward, Three Steps Back, which is a obviously a toned down piano tune, She's going to have the range to make albums that people are going to love on the same level as Taylor Swift and Lord and all of them. So Sky feels like the limit for Olivia Rodrigo right now. Right. Yeah. So I would say like in terms of Sour as an album, I would say there are like slower moments in the middle. Like once I've heard like the fifth ballad track, like it's not going to stand out as much like I could do without some of the ballads. But that's what, again, what makes good for you stand out even more because of how much of a different speed it is. And that would actually probably lead me to, I think, where her biggest room for growth is. As someone who has not been a full-time artist for very long, she does come across as a bit stiff to me as a performer. Uh, you could see that mm-hmm. on SNL. You could even, I think, even see it in some of the videos right now. It, it, yeah. and it's totally, totally fine. Obviously, there's room to grow with that. I would say, though, like, if you want to actually go down, like, the pop punk 
mainstream pop punk ang- uh, <laughs> uh, lane that has recently been resurrected by Machine Gun Kelly of all people, I think you're going to need to bring more energy. So we'll we'll, we'll sure. see how she goes down that right. But ultimately, her path as a pop star, as a Disney alum, is a little different than a lot of the other Disney alums we've talked about of late. Obviously, mainstream pop is filled with Disney alums. Miley Cyrus, Selena, the Jonas Brothers, Ariana. Most of them, especially the female that is mentioned, are all tremendous top-tier vocalists. Olivia is not that. She's more in the Taylor mold, right? She's going to be about writing, first and foremost, because she does not have those A-tier pipes. So I'm I'm just curious to see exactly what's next. How quickly do we get the follow-up from Olivia? Because, again, she's been a full-time artist for four fucking months. It's crazy. Yeah, it it is crazy. And, you know, just thinking about. She's fucking 18, dude, like, you know, you're talking about where where's her room for growth? Like if I was 18 and able to, like, command my my performances and go out there with total confidence, that would be mind blowing. And Taylor Swift for who she is now, you know, 14 years past dropping those earliest albums wasn't did not have the stage presence that she has now you know you even think right. about a lot of the knock on her has been that she comes across as kind of corny and awkward a lot of the time performing and that was even more so in those teen years you know you watch something like her performing change at the i think it was like the vmas or something like that and it's a powerful moment but it was like the first time you really saw taylor and you're like wow she's really like owning this moment that was you know two or three albums in so uh, i think if, if her biggest knock is, oh man, this 18 year old isn't dominating these performances, she's in great shape. I, I really just feel like this is, is, you know, coming out of the next pop queen, so to speak. It's just, mm-hmm. did not expect that this year at all. Oh, absolutely. Uh, gotta say, so her fandom name uh, is the Livies, obviously, short mm. for Olivia. How do you feel about that name when there is another unofficial name that has been floated on social media for months now, which would be the Rodrigue Hose, which is a great hmm. play on last name, if you ask me. What do you uh, think is I a like... better a better name? We've had we've had more crass, quote unquote, fan names before. I think look no further than Benedict Cumberbatch, the Cumberbitches, after all. <laughs> so there's precedent for this. But don't you think yeah. the Rodrigue Hose is like so perfect and Livy's it's definitely a better bland? You know? Oh, yeah. Livy's very bland. Rodney Hose, for sure. Um, <laughs> yeah, check out Sour. I mean, even if, if you like pop music at all, you think you need to listen to this, at least the yeah. first half. After Good For You, if you want to check out, that's fine. But uh, right. this is this is it. Dog. Yeah. So I, I was I was kind of uh, impressed with some of the punch on some of like the slower tracks, like Traitor, right? Like, uh, hmm. I get, was it, I, I guess you didn't cheat, but you're still a cheater. It's like, oh, fuck. Okay. Oh, we're yeah. saying that. We're going out there. Gotta say, this Joshua Bassett guy, I don't know how he comes back from this. This is, uh, <laughs> he's caught several L's in the past few months, and that's, uh, yeah, he's having a tough time. Tough stuff there. Um, also, you mentioned, you know, the, the Paramore comps for, for good for you. Um, all other comps um, you've seen, uh, yeah, it would be, uh, I mean, it is Paramore. Yeah, yeah. We've also seen some Avril Levine comparisons, uh, you know, put no notes. And I gotta say, the streets are talking. Avril Lavigne comeback is coming, and that's exciting to me. So, maybe... Dave, don't don't make me go down this road that Avril Lavigne is not actually the Avril Lavigne that we know, and that that whole conspiracy theory is 
uh it's it's a real rabbit hole for me. leave us a comment below if you think Avril Levine is still kicking and ready to come back and maybe collab with Livy Rodrigo one day youtube.com slash nostalgia pod Avril Levine I, I think it, I might be misremembering this but I'm pretty sure she has some like really interesting credits in terms of like songwriting in her, mm-hmm. her career post like her like pop star days so um Definitely, I think, worth checking out. And yeah, also let us know what you think about the uh, the fan names because we, uh, we're we either Olivia or a Rodrigo. Uh, just uh, let us know what we need to call ourselves. <laughs> uh, favorite, Dave, favorite track off this? It's got to be good for you. Like, yeah, it, it's, it's a, a fucking up. slap, dude. It's really good. Um, I, I would really say love that. Deja Vu, though. Yeah, yeah, I do too. Um, I, good for you. You know, I would say like, like the, you know, late pop punk comparisons there but like i like how she switched up her delivery on that song like the like the what the fuck is up with that part where it's like kind of mm-hmm. an acoustic few seconds like there's some really nice touches on that song and uh, like i said i thought trailer stood out to me i think deja vu is also a dynamite single it's tough to listen to some of the other ballads after you hear something like driver's license because it's just really hard to compare and in yeah. general lyrically it's a bit of a one note album but that's okay because she just turned 18. She has very little, I think, uh, life experience of which to base a uh, album that is supposed to be lyrical about. So I'm not really concerned about that. I've seen that like as a talking point. It's like, oh, Olivia, she's just so sad and we know it's going to be okay. I was like, yeah, no, no fucking kidding. But like, just, just, just let her make the songs. It's fine. Like, like there was a great, yeah. great tweet. It's like, what you want to write about the civil war or something like, like, no, this is, this is the music she's going to make. Cause she's a kid. And that's fine. And it's quite impressive for, again, all the reasons we've stated. So good stuff. You know, one surprising moment was uh, she put the clean version of Driver's License on this album, obviously making it friendly for a younger fan base. But uh, Olivia, just I need more edge. Yeah. 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 That's kind of a weird choice. Many realize that because the explicit version of driver's license has 802 million streams. So she didn't really seem to care until recently, I guess. Maybe, (laughs) maybe I just misheard it. I don't know. Maybe I, I I thought there was, it says explicit right here. Yeah. Is it explicit? Yeah. Uh Yeah. Uh, Not all the songs are explicit, uh, but some of them are. I I think think the moments when she does curse actually like land because she doesn't do it all that often. So, yeah. Don't have don't all right. Have, uh, well, nothing but good things to say right now. Why don't we move forward to the world of TV where Master of None dropped Master of None Moments in Love, their third season, um, which focuses on Lena Waithe's Denise and her love story. Um, five episodes, some hour long some you know 25 30 minutes which i've really appreciated uh you know you don't need to build out any more time on this especially because i think just to kind of get this critique out there while this is a i think a story that is rewarded through the the five episodes and especially builds up in the last two i think really well um there's a lot of time when we're just watching these people do stuff and I could have used a cut down maybe a little bit more on that, but you know, I think the the story to talk about or to start with here is after uh, master of none season two, we weren't really sure when this show was coming back. And then Aziz obviously had um, accusations of 
sexual misconduct, sexual assault. Um, took some time away, came back with a stand-up special on Netflix. Now he's back with Master of None, but only he's in two episodes for, you know, short, short stays on the show. And he's mostly behind the scenes. How did you feel about Aziz's lack of presence in Master of None season three? Yeah, you know, I think it stands out because it actually came across as quite intentional to me, but I think the meta reasons make sense. As you said, Aziz, he directed all these episodes, he co-wrote all these episodes with Lean Away. If he had previously directed some of season two, and of course he's a producer and a co-creator of the show, but where they have Dev's character go in season three, and you get most all this information really in the first episode, uh, kind of made sense as like an analog for how Aziz has been moving since everything with his uh, controversy uh, happened. And I actually, I kind of appreciate like that choice because having Aziz decide to give all the limelight to Lena Waithe and a story about two gay black characters, female characters, so kind of, you know, like you didn't have to do this at all, honestly. Like Netflix was very happy to have you be the lead in a season, proper season three. But it comes off as kind of intentional, and I, I do respect that. Um, now, Moments in Love, this Master of None season three, definitely is different vibe-wise to the first two seasons. That's abundantly obvious. And I think everyone's mileage might vary about what they like and don't like about those changes and like you know change of speed but uh i i did like uh i guess how how it ended up being handled the fact that uh aziz is largely absent on screen yeah uh, i thought that it was handled well too and i think the moments when he comes in <laughs> they do add something but um you know I, I think it especially in the first episode it's a little bit distracting you know because obviously he's not with francesca which was a major cliffhanger from season two um and it it's used to pretty much highlight uh or i guess like it'd be a precursor to the downfall of this relationship um between lena waith and naomi aki um in the show and while i really um appreciate aziz wanting to take a step back i think some people might come at him and say Ah, you're kind of just dodging this. You know, you're kind of taking the easy way out by not having to like expose yourself to the criticism. There's really, for some people, there's going to be a no win for Aziz on this, and he probably knows that. I think yeah. it's a fine decision. Um, at the end of the day, I, I think, I, yeah, I would say that he more openly grappled with it on his comeback special yeah. right now from two years ago. So I'd say at that point, he doesn't like need to. Feel the, I don't think he should feel the need to like have to openly reckon again. I, he's definitely carried yeah. himself in a much more respectful and open and I feel like uh, inward looking way than say someone like Louis C.K. has, for example. So if people don't want to watch Aziz anymore, that's completely fine and up to them. But I, I don't think he needs to act that way. But then again, he chose to. So that that's fine. Yeah. But you're but yeah, it, it, it's a change. It's a difference. Um, and it's definitely uh, noticeable, but I think what I noticed more about this show is where it was in season one and where it shifted to season two in terms of like showiness, uh, a tourness, general um, vibe of the show. 
this is going way more towards that second season and beyond where it's really making the decision to be artsy i feel like at times not necessarily in a bad way but uh you know it's uh in the the aspect ratio is it's, you know the, four, whatever three. it is like three yeah four three uh, i was gonna say three four um it's uh definitely washed out in in terms of color at points you know and uh it, it lingers like it's a show that's really trying to make you feel like you're living in these moments and i think sometimes that really works like when they're doing laundry together and they start you know vibing out and dancing like uh, i'm with that but then there's other moments where i'm watching lena waith the uh, read a book for like a minute and i'm like okay like cut like let's get to the next scene so sometimes it worked for me sometimes it didn't how did you feel about that choice yeah, uh, I think for the most part, it does come across as quite slow, just the pacing, and which is which is a little unfortunate because it does look amazing. The four three is one thing, yeah. but in general, like it's just a really like warm, lingering camera. But yeah, it's just a lot of like moments in time. These moments in love are actual full length moments, and sometimes it's you know some mundane activity you're watching. So. Mm-hmm. I think you kind of got to stick around and wait for the scenes that are going to grab your attention a little more, the more dialogue heavy scenes early on in the first one. I think once Dev and his girlfriend show up, things kind of light up and obviously there's a, you know, some confrontations and then this also obviously sparks uh, the disintegration of a relationship for our actual main characters. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And I'd say episode four is probably the yeah. easiest to recommend, which is, I think believe completely Naomi Aki's character and mm-hmm. just kind of her going through the uh, severe ups and downs of going through, uh, you know, uh, fertility. Yeah. For, for mm-hmm. various fertility, uh, uh, you know, Previous. practices as a uh, elder woman trying to get pregnant. And I think the show does a good job of like getting you to that point in terms of like the relationship, but also Naomi's uh, character's feelings about trying to be pregnant and all that. But it, it it was a little it it, it I was kind of surprised with how much it felt like long in the tooth for a five episode season, which yeah. you know is a little weird. Yeah, um, it's it, I think those dialogue heavy moments, especially when they're talking about their relationship specific, you know, like when Dev and Denise are talking about how they've fallen out of their friendship and. Then when they talk about how they're coming back together and Dev being there for Denise post-divorce, um, you know, Alicia and Denise, uh, not only in episode two, you know, talking about like their episode three, talk about their relationship falling apart. Um, but, you know, when they, she gets to Denise to sign the divorce papers, but then also in episode five, obviously when they come together and they're talking about where their relationship is at now in regards to where they're, lives or day-to-day lives are at um i think those are the moments that really shine um episode four is it feels like a bottle episode in a sense because it is only alicia that that you're following um and around a very specific part of alicia's life but i think the payoff in that episode and then leading up to the i think episode five is a, a pretty real relationship moment which is interesting i think it 
I think pulls a couple of punches and it could have even hit more, but I think episode five is pretty satisfying as well. So I think it really builds up well, but yeah, like episode was episode three when Lena is really struggling and, uh, you know, Denise is selling the house and all that. It's that at that point, I was just kind of like, okay, we just need to like fast forward a little bit here and get to them coming back together. Cause this is tough stuff, but yeah, some real great moments for sure. Yeah, right. And and then at the end of the day, it's just it's it's a different show from the first two seasons. The first two seasons much more of openly a comedy, right? A lot of like mm-hmm. uh, like situational physical comedy. You know, I think of like a lot of stuff between uh, Dev and Arnold, who who's completely absent in this season. Yeah, uh, it's just a little different, you know. And like, I think Master of None got a lot of a lot of people's attention early on, partially because it was Aziz's you know first part post-park stuff so that in and of itself is getting attention but there were like really poignant like comments and moments draped around something that was broadly rom-commy namely mm-hmm. like the indians on tv stuff observations like that right and this time like, the only time i really felt like something like that came up was the moment i believe in episode four where uh aki's talking to the fertility uh clinic uh worker your advisor bad bitch. Yeah, no, no, not even that one. But when they're talking oh. about how um, the insurance companies like don't have like codes for um, gay couples trying to pursue fertility, but they manage to have it for like being killed by a, a killer seal whale. attack. Yeah. yeah, and I was like, huh, wow, did not know about that. And that's definitely something I would expect Master of None to just kind of like sprinkle in there while you're just kind of watching the show. But for the most part, like. Yeah, we have all this, all these like kind of longer scenes. A lot of times without dialogue, and it's, uh, it, it's just a stark change. Yeah, no, for sure, it's a, uh, it's a change. But I think the show is still worth tuning into, worth consuming. Um, you know, I also have to say, I think, like, I think about what I really liked about season two. While it was a little, a little bit less funny, it was just like a really nice hang. You know, you're you're. you're in Italy or kind of driving through the the countryside on the mopeds, you know, you got the little buddy, big buddy um, dynamic. You have Francesca, who's a complete lightning rod for that season. I'd say, um, and a cliffhanger. This was a very like succinct story that was told in kind of these, like, I don't know, like, I guess like real lived in experiences that, were hit and miss and i think um i think it just like felt like it it lost something from season two obviously going for something different so Mm -hmm. makes sense but just a bit of a disappointment i'd say for me yeah i agree well we move on to mayor of east town which wrapped up last night it's seven episode run kate winslet on television um playing mayor sheehan great last name (laughs) And, uh, yeah, you know, this was the first time since Game of Thrones I can remember a show crashing the HBO app for an amount of time last yeah. night. First time in the HBO Max era. Crazy. Which, who knew this show was that, that popular? I, I'd seen a lot of conversation from specific sources about it. People you kind of expect that we kind of consume the content, but people really are digging the show, man. And did you feel like it was justified? Yeah, I was quite invested. I was very excited about the finale. I really enjoyed watching the show. I thought it was a great, another great example of a week-to-week uh, success story 
by HBO. It was it was great that the show was stretched out the way it was for seven weeks. And I overall I think it's quite satisfying. You know, we had talked after seeing the first episode about potential reservations about whether the show would end up delivering because we could tell right off the jump, of course, you know, ending with a dead girl in a stream. It's like, hmm, seems like we're not in the best uh, part of town. And a lot of these characters seem to be not having the best of time at home. So will this show be uh, fun to engage with uh, despite the darkness? And I think for the most part, it certainly was. And that's good. I, I quite enjoyed it. Yeah. This was the first show in a while where I can remember wanting to watch week to week, not wanting to play catch up or being content with like doing like a three episode binge. Like I, w- I wanted to see what was going to happen. I wanted to see how the murder mystery was going to kind of take a twist. And I think if there's one critique I will, I will have is that, um, I definitely became, I think, a little bit more invested in the whodunit of it all rather than the investment in like the character growth, which this I think the story was trying to balance uh, a bit and I think did pretty well. You know, like you get some really satisfying emotional moments in the last couple of episodes, whether it's Mare and Siobhan kind of having their like mother daughter moment. Finally, Um, Mare and her mom having their mother daughter moment. Mare, um, you know, uh, with. uh, forgetting the, the name, but the name of the mom whose daughter was yeah. kidnapped and held hostage. Lori, wasn't it? I can't, no, Lori was the best friend whose son killed. Sorry, spoiler alert. Uh, yeah, scared, I forget but, some of the names. But, but yeah, um, <laughs> you know, you, you get some of those, you get kind of the growth of Mare. Um, I guess even Mare with Guy Pierce, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, which seemed like a yeah really nice moment. Um, so, there, there is some, I think, like nice character storytelling, but I just became way more invested in like, all right, what actually happened here? And it was fun theorizing about it. Um, and I think the fact that the show was able to kind of do both those things well, maybe one more better than the other is really impressive. Um, what were like the, the moments from the season that stood out to you most? Huh, that's a good one. Because, um, yeah, it's a show that, I think why, the reason it's so successful is because it feels so lived in as a place, East Town as a place, yeah. and it's a community that makes sense. And even though it's quite the rich cast of characters, I think it really all comes to a head in a really nice way. Um, but the appeal for I think, a lot of people ultimately is that it's still a crime show and you're watching Mayor uh, solve the case. And in general, I thought that was just really well done, especially once you get... Um, Evan Peters' character, uh, detective, uh, was it Zabel? Zabel shows up. Evan Peters always is a fan of Evan Peters, but he's quite tremendous in in this role. I have to say, a nice foil of sorts for Mayor. And I think everything kind of leading up through his piece on the show obviously leads up to like the the, the solving of part, uh, you know, one piece of the, the the crime story, and then his death as a result. I think everything involving that was great. Like, I, I love the moment when they're like trying to find the bullets and Mayor like finds them in the tree after hours and hours, right? Like the scene where he's mm-hmm. drunk in the bar. All the stuff between those two characters, I thought, really landed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think Zabel and his death were like that, was well, episode five was one of my favorites because not only do you finally get like him and Mayor kind of 
coming to grips about how they're so different as detectives. You know, Zabel is this person that supposedly solved this murder no one else could figure out, but it turns out he didn't actually figure it out. And that's why he's able to not be as consumed as Mare is, where Mare just throws herself into these things because it's all she has at this point. And she it feels like this is the only thing that really gives her a sense of like satisfaction and fulfillment in her life based, you know, post her, the, the traumas her and her family have experienced. And uh, I thought that was just a really wonderful moment. You know, you get the, obviously the kiss between them, which I wasn't really like invested in like a love story between them. I like that. I could have done without that. But um, then you, you get them going and finding that guy who owned the bar, had the girls and, pretty quickly table's gone and it's just like that not only was that scene really well done intense uh but surprising shocking to see evan peters kind of cut out that quickly and uh really leaves you kind of grappling with like the repercussions of mare's the way she goes about this and uh, the the wake of loss and trauma that's you know in, in her life um i really thought that that episode stood out to me as, as a great one um i think one of the other moments that I, I really liked i think the whole like last three episodes are really well done i thought they really landed this final episode really well but even some of the stuff in terms of like um like the the dad of van um Joe McMinniman or whatever his name was, uh, mm-hmm. you know, attacking uh, Dylan and then Dylan grappling with his DJ, actually his son, his feelings around that I thought was really well done and memorable. Yeah. Um, it's just like a lot of really tense moments that just stood out. And yeah, had you gripped. Totally. It, it's also funny to think back now too, is that uh, the Richard character played by Guy Pierce is the real, <laughs> red herring if you that's where you were thinking otherwise just kind of a piece of the puzzle for the community um from what i understand guy pierce is not the original uh, actor cast so but in, at the end of the day you had someone pretty famous probably the definitely this second or third most famous actor in the bunch after kate and evan peters so mm-hmm. you just keep thinking the other shoe is gonna drop with Richard and it never does. He's just exactly who he said he was. And it's like, okay. That, yeah. That, that's nice. I guess, uh, you know, yeah, Sean fancy had a great tweet about that. He's like, guy Pierce is just some like lovable, like, I don't know, uh, professor who came to town to like buy rolling rocks for everybody. And you monsters thought he, he was the killer the whole time. And yeah. It's funny that just these shows, how you start pointing fingers at everybody. Um, just another funny moment. Um, when Lori has like the, the shouting match with, with Mare in the last episode or like screams at her after her son gets taken away. Uh, to say that your, your son who just admitted to shooting and killing someone doesn't know how to hold a gun. Just like a really, really strange uh, claim to make. Um, mm. <laughs> I was a little taken he back. But obviously, time. Yeah, obviously a mother, <laughs> you know, yeah, real that moment. So you can kind of look over it, but um yeah, this was a, a success. Uh, do you want to see season two? I never want to see season two of miniseries. No, I obviously no. I'd watch it as soon as it aired, but I don't know if we uh, need it. Don't need it. Don't need it. Um, see it. Then again, like East Town clearly is a fucked up place. You could very easily just create a new crime story. Uh, I think a lot of like the 
human interest stuff with Mare in terms of her like her family and right and like she goes up to the attic at the end and like there's a an arc completed for her uh mentally and uh in her heart you know you'd have to mm-hmm. create new stuff around around that yep. but um i i'm not you know it's, it's, it's kind of true detective in a certain sense like the crime stuff obviously you could i'm sure you could write that that's not a big deal yeah, but yeah don't uh, need it. i don't want to see it but if if kate wins it wants to come back and do more tv who am i to tell her no um why don't we move on to Amazon, which we started the show talking about, and one of their few original uh, series that we are going to acknowledge, which is the Underground Railroad. Um, you know, based off of the novel by Colson Whitehead, you got Barry Jenkins reading and directing this, uh, which is just really exciting seeing Barry Jenkins coming to television and telling this the story. Um, ten episodes, varying in length. Um, mostly, most of them are an hour long, and it's really following the story of Cora, who is a a runaway slave, a fugitive, wanted for obviously running away, but then also in the first episode, killing um, a uh, slave, a person, a slave catcher, uh, mm. a white name. boy. Yeah, um, and kind of the stories that come about from that and it you know it's a it's surreal and uh, a fantasy in some way the underground railroad in this is actually a railroad and not just like a network of people and mm-hmm. and houses but um you know really it's really beautifully shot this is a there's all the Barry Jenkins signature stylings and touches this was the show is pretty up and down for me. I'm gonna say, and not to say that it wasn't really quality, but I think similar to what we were saying about Master of None, there were just some times when the show dragged a little bit for me, um, and I felt like it could have been paced a little bit differently. But overall, I felt like the stories and the payoff and the moments mm-hmm. were just fantastic, and to see Barry Jenkins making television is just. Uh, amazing viewing what would you think of it yeah yeah i mean there's so much going into it i haven't read the colson whitehead book but i do know that it won the national book award and the pulitzer prize for fiction so it's uh an esteemed text to be be adapting and then not only do you have barry jenkins making something for tv and amazon but you have him bringing back james laxton as a cinematographer and nicholas bertel as composers of course they had both worked with him on his last two films, Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk. So you have all these like appealing pieces going in, right? And at the end of the day, it is a uh, it's a challenging watch. It is not an easy sit because of its subject matter. I think that's kind of obvious, but the show um, doesn't shy away from the darkness, yeah. from the evil that is, uh, you know, of this time. And I understand why that might not be appealing to some people. Heck, I remember back when 12 Years a Slave won Best Picture almost 10 years ago. I mean, there were people then that were like, you know what? I'm good on the slave stuff. I want to see just black stories. I don't need to see black people always as being oppressed mm. and enslaved and all that. But I totally understand. Can't really have it both ways. As a point <laughs> of view. You know, it's like we've had 12 Years a Slave. We've had Roots. We even had recently a Good Lord Bird. You know, which is mm-hmm. the other side of the coin with an abolitionist, but does Ethan Hawke playing John Brown? But 
we've got a lot of stuff, right? It's like, do you want to see something so dark, so um, hopeless at times? Because at the end of the day, like, there's not a lot to latch on to. It's like, it's almost like an internal thing where it's like a reckoning, a, um, a recon- I don't say reconciliation. I don't really know how to say, it, you know, it's like, because something like, say, Judas and the Black Messiah, which we watched recently, we both adored the film. That is really triumphant, even though it is steeped mm. in irreparable tragedy and, you know, evil as well on the part of the FBI. In this case, it's like, it, 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 it's fucking hard, man. It's hard to watch at times. And yeah. it, it, especially from the beginning, like there's some I was gonna you know, heinous shit, as you can expect. And I think you have to be, I don't want to say it's invested in Korra because I feel like Korra is a bit of a thin character as our lead protagonist here, but you have to be, I guess, more invested in like her journey. And cause I actually would say, I think the show, the best part about the show to me, apart from the obvious like stylings is that there is a lot of nuance, like comment and stuff. It's really largely around Korra. It's not really because of Korra. It's about everything going on in the side. So I think that's probably the best stuff. Like there's a, there's like a lot to chew on with that, but um, it, it's a hard show to, uh, I think, you know, you have to really want to want to want to watch it at the end of the day. And I don't think Amazon did anyone any favors by releasing it all at once. You know, I think it's yeah. something as um, harsh as this probably would be easier to stomach if it was all at once. I'd have to imagine, or it was it was week to week. I'd have to imagine. Yeah, I mean, right from the first episode to your point. You see a person, uh, a slave, get uh, put like lit on fire or mm-hmm. running away, and it's it's not like you see the fire go up and they cut. Like you hear the screams, you see the reactions, you watch for about a minute as this person is just being flamed to death, and it's uh, it, it really sets the tone, I think, for the the, the brutality. And you know, it, Barry Jenkins the one of the reasons he's a great filmmaker is he he makes you experience what these people experience. Like he really puts you in these worlds, and um, I I don't want him to change his style on that, but it, it does. It's hard to watch sometimes. Um, I I think one of the things that I really loved about this show, and it's a classic Barry Jenkins touch, but when when the slaves and the black people in this are um, interacting with white people who aren't allies in some way, the color is very brown. It's very Mm -hmm. rusty, dark, and it feels just like muddy in some sense. Like there's like a cloud. When it's black joy, when it's them, you know, experiencing their culture, um, just being able to, to get away from uh, the the white uh, brutality and, and the mm-hmm. white trappings of this, it, it it's so bright and multicolored and technicolored. You know, you think about when they're in Indiana and they're having that celebration mm-hmm. where they're like husking corn and like all yeah, that. the winery, it's, right? The, yeah, the the suits are so extravagant and so bright, and mm-hmm. it's like the greens really pop off the screen. I just was like. This is really Barry Jenkins, I think, where he really shines the most, like making you see like truly like the heaviness of this world just in terms of 
how you visualize it. I thought that was really well done. And, and all the stuff with Ridgeway, I mean, even his like backstory, it's like very dark. Like you, sometimes yeah. I had to like turn the brightness up because it was like, I don't even know what I'm watching right now. It's all, hmm. it's all shadowy. Yeah, you know, I think another really intentional touch of the characters around most of the episodes is that you get these kind of like sweeping like pans where it's a close up just on characters' faces mm. and the characters are looking directly at the camera. And it's kind of surreal, right? Because it's like not like actually like in the action of like the, the episode you're watching. And like, you know, the way it's lit, as you said, it's like very like humanistic. And then kind of also have these other moments where like there's bits and parts where it's like kind of like slow motion right like the music kicks up mm -hmm. and like like i remember in um episode nine in indiana like there's that like part where it's like very orchestral for like five plus minutes yeah. and like those moments just like really really land um i gotta say for me you know ridgeway is interesting right because like obviously joel edgerton is the most uh famous actor on the show he's also the most famous act one of the bigger names that's around a lot like we get you get peter moulin you get lily ray william jackson harper um mm -hmm. will poulter but usually those are just an episode or two yep. for an appearance right there's not not a lot for the most part we're really just sticking with cora and uh, some other unknowns mm -hmm. um but edgerton he, he he's a consistent presence and it's really interesting to see how much screen time he actually gets because he is the villain. He is mm -hmm. the, uh, you know, and the backstory. At, at, at first, I was like, do we need the backstory of the slave catcher? Is that really what we need to spend time on here? But then you watch it and you're like, huh. And, and, and in a sense, it kind of colors in exactly what kind of terrible person he was. Because you see his racism exposed and you see his father's like resignation that he's completely failed his son and this like the world has consumed him right for for the negative meanwhile you stick with ridgeway for many more episodes until he finally dies and it's like it's honestly a very weird journey because you see this guy almost like consumed by his desire to capture cora and like succeed at like for him it's like, like the only way he could feel fulfilled right honestly though i think the one of the most interesting pieces that there was still so much more room to chew on was fucking Homer as a character. Yeah. Right. This, I thought there was going to be some payoff with him. Yeah. You have this young black boy who has been freed by Ridgeway, but chooses to stay with him and actively assist him in capturing other slaves, which almost certainly is sentencing them to a grisly death. Mm -hmm. And like what kind of psyche Homer has I think is really interesting because again, like there's so much more nuance like on the show, right? And it's like the um, black person aiding the oppression of other black people is, is a common theme with these kind of stories, mm -hmm. right? Like whether it's like an overseer character on the plantation, but I think Homer was so fascinating and we really don't see it delved into it. I don't know if that's just the product of where the book chooses to focus or not. I haven't read the book, but uh, I thought there was a lot more potential with that uh, easily. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, you know, there's that moment in uh, the last episode, or maybe it's just a, sorry, penultimate episode where um, Cora is being forced by Ridgeway to go down to the Underground Railroad. And you see Homer, who's been, who just watched these black people be, you know, circled mm -hmm. inside of a church and yeah, slaughtered, shot basically. at and uh, slaughtered. Um, and 
also witnessed tons of other atrocities, like you said, uh, has been abating in the oppression of uh, people of his own race. And he's behind him with the gun. He has the opportunity. And in that moment, you think like, oh, here's here's Homer's redemption moment. And you never get it. And really, you see him like uh, choosing to uh, end to Ridgeway in his dying moments. It's really a uh, it's really a fascinating character. That I do think there was more left on bone. Um, you know, I, I think some of the other moments that stood out and maybe not more to explore, just like I really enjoyed was seeing Cora interact with the under like the actual railroad people right. and how she had yeah. to like tell her story every time. And like yes. kind of that testimony. theme of like, yeah, why that testimony is so important. Um, and I think like just some of those themes really stood out to me, like the theme of, black people telling their story in order to like propel their culture forward since it was being stolen from them all the time and this is a lot of times what they had that they got, couldn't be taken away from them i thought that was something that really stood out and was really well done um and hammered home i think we kind of touched on this but like the effect of trauma on these people you know you see it with cora when especially when she's like being boarded by uh, O'Shea Jackson there. Um, uh, O'Shea Jackson, I'm sorry. Uh, William Jackson Harper. Yeah, I was um, going to say O'Shea wait, Jackson. Wait, that would have been yeah. cool. <laughs> no, wait, wait, when you see William, William Jackson Harper um, like courting her and she's like unable to like really like allow herself to be cared for and to like really like trust him because of yeah. all the time she's had other people obviously mm-hmm. turn on her, give her up. It just is really well done done in that sense and it just really left me thinking about how much uh you know the the current cultural climate is impacted by these times and people think like oh well that was so long ago you know you you hear a lot of times like people talk about well i didn't do this like i wasn't part of that i didn't have slaves it's like well but this is like the the generational trauma effects and i think barry jenkins gets that across pretty well and hammers at home in the final episode when you kind of get the reveal of the mystery of Cora's mother you know yeah, that right she Maybe. didn't actually escape you know she was uh she died in that French or um not trench uh swamp swamp yeah swamp pond whatever it was yeah right yeah um I think another thing that stood out to me was once uh Cora is on her way to Indiana and then she gets to Indiana th- like there's kind of like a like a tonal shift for a bit like the tension of like the chase versus the escape is largely paused. And as you said, uh, William Jackson Harper's character Royal is like trying to get her to, you know, ease up a little bit and then eventually courting her. And we're learning more about this winery black community in Indiana, but yet the tension for the audience is like still there. Cause like, you just have a feeling the other shoe is going to drop. And I think that's one of the toughest <laughs> things to watch about this show in general is a lot of times you see just the pure evil about to happen mm-hmm. before it happens. Right? Like we're watching this um, posse of white men decide now, you know what? It's too many independent black people here. We're just going to murder all of them. Like you see it happening before it actually happens. Yeah. Right. Just like, you know, that once the, um, Cora's plantation owner dies and the uh, much more deranged, uh, sadistic brother is going to take over. You know things are going to change for the worse well before it actually happens. And then, of course, we literally see a guy 
get whipped whipped to death nearly and then literally burned alive right like you see all this yep. stuff on like the periphery and then it actually like comes full force and as you said we do not cut away um i think those middle scenes like with indiana it, it almost like struck me because i was like wow i was like so like tense and like like mm-hmm. uncomfortable with just the unknown of what's going to happen as as an escape but i almost was mo- somehow more like used to that kind of stuff when cora was like in indiana it was seeing a lot of good things happening a lot of like joyous stuff happening right like this community building themselves up on their own and it's like wow it's like like i was not ready for this kind of feeling on the show mm-hmm. but you have that feeling for like almost two hours before it obviously all yeah the shit, shit anyway so it's a uh, you know i actually i think too another one like the nuance more nuanced stuff happens in indiana when you have like the two like uh, leaders of the community and they both have different views on how mm-hmm. they should interact with with white people. neighboring white people and stuff and again yeah. that there's a lot of like i think more relevant stuff to uh, race relations today in their, their their conversations before obviously it's all snuffed out so um yeah it's like i said it's not the easiest show to recommend from a pure watching standpoint but it's really i think really impressively made and yeah and in terms of amazon like actually having like something so stand out like this like we don't expect it from amazon they don't really make a lot of uh no- notable shows at the end of the day but this is uh it, 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 I'd say it definitely delivers on what you expect. It's Barry Jenkins making a ten episode show. Like, I mean, this 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 was a it's it's a completely epic show. Like it was shot over mm-hmm. 100, 100 plus days. You know, it's looks fantastic. And yeah, I know it looks thema- so thematically. Real. It's challenging, it's... but uh, it, it delivers on everything really. Yeah, I agree. I think we'll be hearing about this when uh, Emmy Awards come around. But um, you know, Dave, I'm, I'm noticing that we're running long. This is a jam packed episode. And we still have. Army of the Dead to talk about the new right. Zack Snyder film. Um, Snyder again, he's back. Yeah, we're ta- Justice League and Army of the Dead. Justice League the Snyder Cut and Army of the Dead on the same mm-hmm. year. Um, Zack Snyder's Justice League. What what a year! And you know, Army of the Dead. Uh, it's long <laughs> for yeah. a movie like this, but I think it's uh, it's entertaining enough. Where I'm like, okay, that was that was pretty good, and it feels like a step in the right direction as Zack Snyder's kind of getting his footing back after you know taking some time away from movies after some family issues. How did you feel about Army of the Dead, though? Did you like it? Yeah, I was like pleasantly surprised with how watchable it was. Um, not connected to Snyder's first directorial effort, the Dawn of the Dead remake from the early 2000s, but seemingly the start of a new franchise for Zack Snyder mm-hmm. and uh, his wife as well, who, who uh, is a co-producer. Uh, Netflix has a spin-off show in the works, uh, already shot, a prequel show, uh, as well as anime coming. So seems to be a new new ground for Zack here as he leaves DC behind. But I, I was uh, surprised with how entertained I was. I completely agree. It's way too long. And I think if we <laughs> cut out a few of those uh, B-plots, it would actually have been a much more tight uh and I definitely think that the movie, partially due to the length and like the excess fat, seems to fizzle out a little bit as it concludes. But I really appreciate the beginning. I think it's really, really fun, the first like hour or so. Yeah. What did you even think about the first like 10 minutes? How it like kind of sets up this whole like 
zombie apocalypse in Vegas type thing, including the title credits. Did you enjoy that? Yeah, so I think the, that a montage you could argue is probably the best thing about the movie, right? So this Viva yeah. Las Vegas montage as you watch the uh, the fall of Vegas in a certain sense before it's like cordoned off and you see uh, a lot of the characters, their past lives becoming their current lives and obviously you get that Snyder slow motion as a result, but it also harkens yeah. back to uh, the Watchmen opening montage, which is also widely celebrated. And I think that's really fun. And then it kind of leads into like again the game together uh, you know, vibe arc to start off the movie. Um, but yeah, I, I thought it was effective in terms of setting up the world, as it were. You know, it, it, it mm-hmm. it's zombies. It's not too complicated. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I thought it was a really effective setup, you know, in terms of, you know, the military uh, envoy being uh, falling over, or getting in an accident, and then everything that came with that. Um and then uh, obviously the montage is great. Um, it does have a, you know, I think it takes a little long in terms of like the getting the team together type thing. But um, I like how pretty quickly, like uh, it's like there's a le- what you're following, like I think 11 people or something like that in this group. And it gives only certain people like, time and the other ones that like, this guy is the best at this. So, they're coming along (laughs) they were like even once they get to the camp they're like we're gonna need this person as well she's the only one that can get us through there so i thought that was done okay um you know the thing is i don't really know if i buy dave bautista in like the heartfelt moments like him stuff with him and his daughter kind of fell flat for me i just don't think he has that range but dave bautista action star holy there for it like he's just this huge dude he's like you know built to fuck shit up so I was down with that. Yeah, some of those, um, B, those B plots with the family, I think, were the my. I was least interested in those in terms of yeah the melodrama regarding Batista's uh, family. I agree, it was probably the weaker stuff and definitely not to his strength. Yeah, and his daughter's whole thing about like wanting to save that like one specific family also was a little bit like you know, don't really care so much about this. But okay, um, did you miss Chris Leah's presence in this? Uh, I did not miss it. Obviously, he was <laughs> completely replaced by Tignatero. And there's a yeah. wonderful article on Vulture about how that was actually done in terms of Tig mm-hmm. showing up at the end of production and shooting stand-ins and how they had to basically have her like walk, but not walk too fast in terms of replacing her in like the background and stuff and superimposing him over... <laughs> Dalia's body that actually did the shooting so very interesting story there but I thought Tignatero was quite uh, uh, pleasant as this uh, like helicopter yeah. pilot character considering she's not really much of a, you know a dramatic actor so uh, I liked her a lot I thought she was pretty good I was really impressed actually with how they were able to like do this because I think it was what uh, last August um yeah, it was last yeah, August. The movie that was done. Tignatero was made the decision. Yeah. yeah, and I I feel like there's like maybe a couple of moments when you could like notice some seams on that, but mostly done really well. And yeah, I thought Tignatero was like a nice presence to the movie. You know, definitely a different character from the rest of um, the energy of the movie. Um, and I think in terms of like the side characters outside of Dave Bautista, um, 
I really liked well, who was the the code cracker guy? Was that um Matthias? Yeah, Matthias Schweighofer. I really yeah, liked he, him. He's gonna be uh, a key focus of the prequel. Yeah, which I think is great. He brought a, uh, obviously a very distinct energy and very like lovable character in general, especially the way that him and um, Vandero, which who was played by Omari Hardwick, I thought they had like a nice like back and forth going between them. Um, did you did you have any other like side characters that stood out to you or supporting people? That yeah, I liked? think those are the key ones there. I uh, I also liked uh, Raul Castillo's character as like a youtube star for killing zombies like he is he is pretty fun um oh there's a lot of beats where like you see a character's death coming way before it actually happens there's a lot of characters so you can tell a lot of people are not long for the world as it were um Mm -hmm. but i also like the uh i forgot the blonde woman who was like the coyote of sorts like sneaking people in and out and stuff i liked her energy um Mm -hmm. and yeah i thought in general it's just it's just kind of fun you know, just watching people shoot yeah. zombies. Uh, there's like, I guess, more like meat on like the zombie culture bone in terms of like, there's like this like greater hierarchy of like zombies that have sex, and it's like, huh, interesting. I yeah, guess. I'm sure we're getting a lot more of like the science fiction of it all in the future works, but and like, do we need that? No, I mean, we don't need it, but like. I think Army of the Dead is successful because, like, the high concept, like, focus stuff being a heist film with zombies. That stuff largely works. And that's why I think the movie overall is succeeds. But yeah, there's tons of, like, things we could have excised from this. But that's, that's how Zack Snyder is. He uh, does not, uh, we don't come to him for nuance. And in this case, we got the, the full Snyder cut the first time around. So it's a long movie. <laughs> can't you can't, you can't yeah, complain you never, now. we we was we, what everyone wanted right yeah you're, you're never getting lean with Zack snyder it's always fatty um you know I, I i thought it was a fun but kind of weird quirk that there's like this queen and this king zombie <laughs> you know also that like zombies can reproduce uh i don't need to know how that works just you know i i'll i'll buy it you know don't don't give me the science i guess but overall, th- th- this was fun. And um, it's nice to see Zack Snyder, you know, making something that feels like a, a win for him. And so and I think a win for Netflix. Like this is definitely one of the better Netflix movies that we've reviewed. So, uh, you know, I, not including the like very auteur driven ones like Roma or something like yeah, that. This sure. is, I think, definitely mm-hmm. those Netflix movies. Only so, wrap up there, Dave. What do we got for next week? Got a lot of stuff still to discuss. Talk about Cruella, Disney Plus out now in theaters. Uh, Halston, yeah. the Ewan McGregor, Ryan Murphy Netflix miniseries. We got oh, yeah. oh, oh Guy Ritchie's latest mm-hmm. film, Wrath of Man, is now on VOD. Little mm-hmm. Baby and Little Dirk are making a collab album. We got some stuff. <laughs> Do not worry, we got some things. We'll be talking about it all. SoundCloud.com slash NostalgiaPod, YouTube.com slash NostalgiaPod, and of course, follow us on Twitter at NostalgiaPod. We'll see you next week. Hey.